Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. Back from the brink, back from his basement, is Michael Lavonia. <laughs> back in the barn once more. Welcome back, Michael. Good to be here. How can you have a brink in a basement? Is that is I that don't know. I guess it's a metaphorical brink that you've come uh, back from. You would I fall up. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I just had to say something <laughs> that, had, that had a B in it that sort of would be, I don't know, it would sort of connect with barn and basement. So Yeah, good job. Good job. Yeah, yeah I did well. I did well there, didn't I? Anyway, moving on. So look, we're here to talk about a couple of things today. We're going to talk about... Um, well, it's kind of a recent video I made about FutureFi and some of the pushback I'm seeing on on that concept, not in a negative way or anything like that, but I just want to talk mm. about some ideas. And then we're going to talk about the story that every other bastard has spoken about in the last <laughs> couple of weeks, and that's this MoFi gate story. But we have a much, I think our angle on this is will be completely different to everybody else's, right? It's mm. It's not so time sensitive and, uh, well, hang around, you'll find out. But first, I, I want to tackle a few news items um, because we've got a new Altair and a new Aries from Auralic. These are streaming products. The Aries is just a sort of dedicated streamer. The Altair is a sort of all-in-one with the headphone output. And both of them are three grand. They're only sort of, I say only, these are point up upgrades. They're not big new releases. So we've gone from G1 to G1.1. And that means we get i believe if i look at my notes properly mm. a a high mass base to reduce the negative influence of vibrations which can plague digital products and we get airplay 2 support yeah but so it's not it's not a big news item but it's still relatively new so if you were kind of on the fence about an altair or an aries g1 this might mm. kind of give you the extra push you need um also hi-fi man this is actually this is i think really interesting actually is that they ha Hi-Fi Man have this planar magnetic open back headphone called the Sundara. And I think it sells for about four or 500 bucks. It's been extremely popular. Mm. And I guess Hi-Fi Man have seen this and now they're going to introduce a closed back version with these really nice wooden ear cups. I think they're made of beech wood. And it still has what they call stealth magnet technology, super nano diaphragm, which means it's super thin. I think Hi-Fi Man's one of their claims to fame is that their driver is the thinnest in the world. It's less than a nanometer thick. Mm. And also this headphone will be similarly affordable. I think it's going to be 400 US dollars. And I think it goes on sale actually this month. Mm. But that headphone is going to be popular because it's planar. It looks good. Mm -hmm. It's already got a proven track record in its open back version. So I think, yeah, that's going to be yeah fairly interesting. Um, the UK's Verter Acoustics, we don't talk about them very often, but I've had my eye on their DG1 turntable for a long time mm. because it, to me, it's sort of, in my head, it sit ne sits next to the Rager Planar 8, which I do own, mm -hmm. in that the DG1 is, it, it looks like no other turntable out there. And it's it's tone arm, it's, it, it's made of these like mm. laminate polymer layers. Right, it's it's almost it. I won't say it's completely flat, but it's not. It's not a tubular tone arm. It's just it's built from you know these flat layers, so it looks kind of weird from the side, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the, actually, the whole table is, you know, the the plinth is an odd <clears throat> design. 
yes. in that from a top view. I'm, I'm looking at it, but from a top yeah. view, it's, it's got all these angles cut into it, almost like a like a an electric guitar you would see used in a heavy metal band. <laughs> right. I mean, it is belt drive. It is a high-end turntable, although this is mm. Viter's kind of his most affordable turntable, but they have introduced an updated version. So it's not the DG1 anymore. It's the DG1S. And I think what they've done is they've increased the number of layers in the tone arm from mm. three to five. They've improved the, the bearing assembly of the, the tone arm. So you can now adjust azimuth if you want to. And then the the layers that make up the plinth have been sort of rejigged or rearranged or redone so that they can further reject negative vibrations or the negative mm -hmm. influence of night vibrations, which is also obviously very important in the uh, turntable world. Um, but this is an expensive turntable. It's over 4,000 euros, 4,148, according to my notes, or 5,000 US dollars shipping in September, 2022. But I like this because it's a UK company that's sort of flying under the radar. They're, they're not super well-known, but I think they deserve to be better well-known, which is, I think, really why I covered it, actually, because the turntable conversation seems to be, to me, dominated by Project, Rager, Technics. Hmm. Maybe a bit of Thorns thrown in. I don't know, but I, I think that the more players there are that we talk about, the better. And... Talking of project, here we are again. They've got two new turntables. We project issue a new turntable every few months, it seems, right? They, mm. they seem to have more new products coming out than Macintosh, and that's saying something. <laughs> um, but I think, have we spoken about this before in the podcast where projects introduce a turntable with a balanced output that goes into a balanced input on their phono stage, on a new phono stage? Have we spoken about this? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Not that right. I recall, but... Well, this is Project's sort of latest push. It's basically to say, if you've got a moving coil cartridge, you can extract a balanced signal from that cartridge. So most turntables only have single-ended outputs on the back, right? Two RCAs. Hmm. So what Projects are starting to do is put these, well, in their case, mini XLR sockets on the back of their turntables to carry that balanced signal out of the table into a balanced input on a phono stage, and they make the phono stages as well. Hmm. So the X1B and the X2B at $1,300 and $1,700 US a piece are, I guess, iterative updates to those turntables that make good on this sort of balanced connection promise. Hmm. But there's a bit of a wrinkle, right? Because these tables come with different cartridges in different territories. So in the USA, hmm. if you buy an X1B, you get a Samiko Rayner cartridge, right? Mm -hmm. But that's moving magnet. Moving magnet. You can't get a balanced signal from a moving magnet cartridge. You just do the, with the way the, the cartridge is built. I, I can't give you the specifics because Heinz Lichtenegger did explain it to, to me once and I've, I've kind of forgotten. <laughs> so I don't want to try and attempt to explain it and get it wrong and mm. have a billion people email me going, John, you're an idiot. <laughs> so just know that when you buy this turntable in the USA, you're going to have to upgrade the cartridge to an MC cartridge if you want to go true balanced. Whereas in Germany, the XB2, so the more expensive of the two, sells for roughly the same price as in the USA, but it comes with an Autophon MC Quintet Red. So you've got oh. moving coil from, from the get-go, right? Mm. I'm sure this is to do with licensing or bundled deals. I don't know. I don't mm. get into the politics of distribution deals and things like that. But I yeah. guess what I'm saying is, is that 
I think Europeans get the better deal out of the box here. Yeah. Um, but it's still interesting to me that Project, I, I, I mean, I've not heard one of their balanced turntables, but it's interesting. It's an interesting twist on a technology that's been around for a long, long time. And, and I guess, I think there are other couple of other companies doing it. I think Torrens are doing this as well now, hmm. but or Thorens, if you, you know, from the UK or USA or Australia, but sorry, I say it the German way because I just can't think of it any other way anymore, hmm. but balanced connections out of turntables. Interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's not worth getting into, but yeah, the, the reasons behind why you would opt for a balanced connection over single ended is that's old, old news, but they're valid reasons. Yeah. Well, I will get into it because uh, project do talk about it and they talk about a lower noise floor yeah. on the connection, which basically means probably I'm guessing here, better detail retrieval, mm. right? I mean, if you lower the noise floor, you can kind of hear more into the signal. I mean, again, the improvement will, won't be night and day, mm -hmm. you know, it won't destroy single ended, <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it will, you know, there might be an improvement for some people with super revealing systems. Mm -hmm. Um, lastly, shit audio, they've got a new, uh, DAC. I mean, shit also are sort of pumping out the products at the moment. This new DAC is an update to the Bifrost two. It's called the Bifrost two slash 64 sells for 800 bucks. And it basically brings with it a new improved analog section. And I have to quote this because I'm not entirely sure where this comes from, but it says a new analog session that in quotes throws 64 bits of DACness at each channel to bring hardware balanced performance to our most affordable upgradable DAC, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this is also about balanced connections because I can see two XLR sockets, but it's not fake balanced. It's balanced all the way through. Mm. And apparently this, this new version also has a non-oversampling mode, if that's kind of your thing, if you want to play with that. Mm. But I think the, the really interesting thing about this DAC is that if you've already got one of the original Bifrost 2s and you want to get a 2 slash 64, you don't have to sell your existing unit and buy a new one. You can just order the upgrade board from shit. They send it out to you. You can um, install it manually. You flash the firmware and you have effectively a Bifrost 2 slash 64. And you can do that for 300 bucks all from the comfort of your own, own home. You don't need to send your unit back to California or Texas, which I think is great. From yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A, a sustainability point of view, right? I mean, this mm. is something that I think is going to have to be seen more and more in audio where gear isn't sort of rendered. Mm. Well, it's, it, it's a psychological thing, isn't it? Because just because a new version of your existing DAC comes out doesn't suddenly render your current DAC useless yeah. or it doesn't change its sound, does it? But you suddenly feel like you don't have the latest version. And for some people, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's a problem that those people think that because I think we should really, I mean, um, uh, this, is a, this is where I kind of contradict myself. You and I are in the game of talking about hi-fi. We promote hi-fi. One of the side effects of talking about hi-fi is kind of generating gear lust, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So we're part of the problem in many ways. I mean, if we didn't talk about it, people wouldn't know about it. And therefore, they might be happier with what they have. So I don't know. It's one of those chicken and egg situations that I can't, I haven't gotten to the bottom of yet. Probably never will. But mm. I think, I think we should be happy with what we have. Well, well, happier I, with what we have. I think this right. will tie in to a, a, 
Yes, it will. Yeah, but the idea that, um, uh, I mean, let's just, sticking with the, the Bifrost story, this uh, update, hmm. you know, I, I would imagine there are people out there who go, oh, God, I always wanted to try a non-oversampling DAC. I heard they're really good. So, I, oh, I have the old Bifrost. Oh, it's not non-oversampling. I need to try that. Not like that kind of thought process. when my you know my attitude or my question would be well how do you like the deck you've been living with have mm. you found like yourself going boy i really don't listen to music as much as i used to because i don't i think it's my DAC, and i think i would listen to more music if it was non oversampling <laughs> you know it's just like i think there's this there becomes a separation between the idea and the reality and mm. i'd much prefer to stick to the re the experience and the reality than to get lost in the sauce of, of ideas and abstracts. I mean, but this is, this is basic human psychology. It's like, if only I had X, then I would be set. <laughs> yes. but, but as soon as you get X, it's then, oh, well, I just need to get then that Y and then I'll be set. Right. And it never ends that kind of iterative desire for s something very slightly better because you can afford to do it. Mm. I'm not, the, de the deck guess, is always greener. Yeah. <laughs> It is. Well, this is one of the reasons I'm really not trying to, well, basically not covering or not reviewing decks because the incremental upgrade that they bring, even when you move from a $100 DAC to a 15 grand DAC, isn't as big as other things you could do in your playback chain. Mm. We've, I've, I've, yeah, I've spoken about that, that loads this year. I'm not going to rehash it here, but. I don't, I'm not saying that anybody's wrong for wanting a new DAC or wanting to upgrade their DAC, mm -hmm. but I would ask like, what is it that you want from a new DAC that you don't currently have sound wise from your existing DAC? Mm -hmm. Try and answer that question. Like what, what is, or what, it, or maybe your existing DAC does something that you don't like. Maybe it's a bit glary. Maybe it's a bit weak in the base. I don't know. Or, you mm -hmm. know but what, what is it you're looking for? What problem are you trying to solve? Mm -hmm. Think of it that way because the Bifrost 2, it's a great DAC. Yeah. I, yeah. Do you need the new one? Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. I don't know. It's just be sensible about it. Mm. And if you've got 300 bucks to spare for the upgrade, you could think about, I don't know, what could you think about for 300 bucks that would make, yeah, you can't really get a new amplifier for that. And I don't, I certainly don't want to get into cables because that really sets the, uh, <laughs> the listeners off, right? Or, you know, 300 bucks on cables, what a waste of money. But no, not necessarily, you know, maybe your speaker, speaker wire is sort of lamp cord. And if you spent that 300 bucks on a better speaker cable, maybe that would bring you a, a noticeable improvement. I would mm -hmm. guess it would if you're starting from lamp cord. If you're starting from, I don't know, 20 euro cable all up, then again, maybe there's an incremental improvement to be had. But if you've already got like two hundred dollars speaker cable, then yeah, yeah, the extra you can buy a lot of music for three hundred dollars. That's for sure. That's a very good point. If you're into physical formats, yes, you could buy a lot of well, or even downloads, right? I mean, yes, we'll talk yeah. about that in a bit, right? Okay, yeah. But this kind of sort of this idea of upgrades and feeling left behind is something I want to talk about with respect to streaming, mm. because I made a video recently about what I think the future of hi-fi is and it basically boils down to two things michael it's basically streaming amplifiers with passive speakers or 
streaming active loudspeakers, so all the electronics in the speaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm oversimplifying to the max, but basically the streamer is either inside the speaker or inside the amp. And in the comment section, people quite reasonably said, well, I prefer separates. Okay, fair, fair enough. I'm not going to argue with that. Mm. But people say, well, I don't want to have the streaming in my amp because the streaming world moves so quickly mm. and technology is always changing and I don't want to be left with a, they use the term paperweight quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Now I've thought about this quite a bit since I made that video <laughs> and saw those comments, right? And I, I, I politely, but firmly disagree that the streaming world is moving at such a rate that you're being left behind. And I want to just very briefly discuss this today, right? Yeah. Now I'll give an example. So upstairs in one of my drawers, I have the, talking of Auralic, we did before, I have the original Auralic Aries streamer. Mm-hmm. I think they made two. I think one was called the LE. One came with a sort of fancy power supply. I've got that one. It's like a, it's in a sort of plastic clamshell. Now, when that came out in 2014, mm. so eight years ago, yeah. that thing did Auralic's own platform, Lightning DS Streaming, and it did Apple AirPlay. Yeah, AirPlay 1, mm. right? When the first Blue Sound node came out in 2013, what did that do? I think that did AirPlay, and it might have done Spotify Connect as well, but I'm, I'm guessing here. Mm. I think it did. When the first, let me think, Kef LS60 wireless streaming loudspeaker came out, 2016, that did Spotify Connect it eventually did airplay, but I don't think it was there out of the gate. They, they had streaming built into their their own app. We'll come back to that in a bit, the mm. own app bit. But what I'm kind of getting to here is, generally speaking, most streamers that have come to market since 2014 have almost always featured airplay. Mm-hmm. They've oftentimes featured Spotify Connect. And increasingly more often, ironically, since the discontinuation of the Chromecast audio puck, they are now featuring Google Chromecast. Mm. Now I call this the big three because they come from three very large corporations, Apple, Google, Spotify. Mm. Spotify is the biggest streaming service on the planet, right? And we tend to see these things in pretty much, so in every modern day blue sound node, right? Yeah. You get AirPlaying Spotify Connect. In all the air sorry, in all the oral streamers, you get AirPlay and Spotify Connect. In name streamers, you get AirPlay, Spotify Connect, and Chromecast. You also get Tidal Connect. But that to me is a, mm. a smaller player. I call that an outlier, right? And I would actually, in this sense, in the context of Apple, Google, Spotify, I would classify Rune as an outlier. I'm not ignoring Rune. Mm-hmm. But I am going somewhere with this, I promise, is mm. that those, so for example, that Auralic Aries streamer that I have in my cupboard upstairs, I could plug that in today and it would still do AirPlay properly, even though AirPlay 2 is now the, the Apple thing. Mm-hmm. It's backwards compatible. It would still do Spotify Connect. If I plug in my name Unity Atom, which is only six years old, but it still does AirPlay, Chromecast, Spotify Connect. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything that I can think of that I have in my house that does streaming where 
Apple AirPlay or Chromecast or Spotify Connect, if they were originally part of that feature set, have fallen off. Hmm. Not right. at all, right? They're right. still there. So I would argue that because these companies are so large, and we've seen this with Apple when they introduced AirPlay 2, it's backwards compatible. Spotify Connect still works. Hmm. I think you need a certain standard of phone to make it work. You need a, a Spotify premium account for sure but it's still a fundamental that's still there and still works. It's not like Spotify have changed Spotify Connect so much in the last, I don't know, 10 or eight years that it, it no longer works on certain devices. I know there are licensing issues with certain manufacturers, but generally these are outlier cases. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'm getting to here is I think that people's anxiety about changing streaming platforms or protocols mm. with airplay with chromecast and with spotify connect are i think they're pretty much unfounded or well, i can't see any basis to say you know people we have to look to the past to inform the future right yeah so what has happened in the past that makes people nervous about airplay chromecast and spotify connect I, i'm not seeing it yeah i don't know if you if, if you do see it let me know via email but michael do you see it I, is there something i'm missing here uh, no, you know, no, I don't see it. And just to put a, attach a date to Spotify Connect, that was introduced in September of 2013. Okay. And Chromecast, the first, I mean, the first hardware device Chromecast was released in, also in 2013. Hmm. Uh, and AirPlay, 2010. So you're looking at, uh, I mean, nearly 10-year-old technology that's still viable and still works today i mean so, is yeah. it yeah yeah sorry yes go on go ahead sorry. yeah and that, <laughs> that that um that's essentially forever right i mean and you know I, the idea that that streaming technology is going to outdate itself rapidly or it has uh, i mean the facts don't really play out to support that they, point of view not with these three systems i don't think and i don't think that when apple introduced airplay 3 they're not i don't think they they're going to cut off airplay 1 users hmm. like if you've got an, a phone that does apple airplay 3 it's still going to stream airplay 1 to your Auralic or your blue sound or yeah. whatever sort of legacy streamer you have right yeah. mm -hmm. so what i'm saying is i think people are pretty safe with chromecast airplay and spotify connect mm-hmm we can't really know about Tidal Connect, A, because they're a smaller bit player in the streaming world, mm. and also because Tidal Connect is a lot newer. It's only two or three years old. Yeah. And it doesn't have the hardware penetration of certainly Spotify Connect. That, that shit's everywhere. Same with AirPlay. Chromecast is a weird one. We're mm. starting to see more of that because, and this is a little known fact, and I have Danny uh, Dulai at Rune to thank for alerting me to this. Mm is that there's a company called Stream Unlimited that makes streaming boards. They're not the only company in the world that make them, but they make sort of OEM streaming boards for hardware manufacturers. And so in KEF products nowadays, they're using Stream Unlimited boards and the Dynaudio Focus 30 mm -hmm. Stream Unlimited boards, right? And yeah. you see them in lots of products, but manufacturers tend not to talk about them too often, but you can, tend, you can spot them, right? Because the KEF LS60 wireless the Dynaudio Focus 30, they they both do Spotify Connect, Tidal Connect, 
Rune Ready, uh, Google Chromecast. Chromecast for me was the giveaway. Now, yeah. why is why are we seeing Chromecast on Stream Unlimited boards all of a sudden? Because they didn't used to feature them, mm. or not not that I'm aware of. So when Stream Unlimited sell a board to a manufacturer, they go, okay, what streaming services do you want? It's like a checkbox ordering yeah. system. So Danny alerted me to the fact that Google bought a significant chunk, not a, I don't think a, a, a more than 50% in Stream Unlimited oh, about five, five years ago, right? I did, yeah, that, I didn't I, know that. I didn't know this. Yeah, right. So I'm not saying there's a conspiracy at play. I'm just saying <laughs> this is possibly why we're seeing Chromecast in Stream Unlimited boards mm. more now than we ever have and why we're, there, we're therefore seeing them inside streaming hardware, you know, you know, amps, speakers, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so those things, I don't, I just don't see them going away. I don't see them being deprecated to non-functional status, mm -hmm. but I have to think that a lot of people's anxiety with, I guess, technology moving too quickly is a function of their age, because as we get older, we struggle to kind of keep up and we kind of, oh, these young kids, they've got all this technology. I don't understand it. Right. But mm -hmm. also, <laughs> also I think Sonos played into this quite a lot because a few couple, was it two years ago? They said, okay, we're going to split our, we're going to sort of fork off our, some of our older models into what's called the S one ecosystem. And they're going to get security updates, but they're not going to get any new features. Mm -hmm. And, the S2 products, the newer ones, will get new features and security updates. Mm. And there was a whole lot of wailing and gnashing of, gnashing of teeth about this, and I couldn't, I couldn't really get my head around it because being told that you've bought a new, you know, you, a product that you've owned for a couple of years, or maybe say four years, being told that you're getting no new features, wh why is that a point of anxiety or, or annoyance? Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. For example, if I buy an amplifier, let's say it's class D, it's Hypex. Let's say I've owned it for three years and then Hypex introduce a new amplifier module <laughs> that they can sell to manufacturers, right? Mm. Do I stamp, do I sort of punch the table, thump the table because I, my amplifier is not getting the new modules inserted somehow mm. magically? No, like I bought what I have. So really to me, when I buy something, I'm accepting the feature set it has at that at this moment in time. And I also think that you should never buy something on a promise. Like, oh, we're going to yes. have this feature in, in a year. Don't yes. ever do that. Don't believe the manufacturer because sometimes that shit doesn't come to fruition. Mm -hmm. But but generally speaking, I mean, again, that doesn't happen too often as far as I can tell. I don't know. So I can sort of see this sort of, I understand the anxiety of owning an S1 Sonos product, but you're still getting security updates. It's not like you're being, you know, left a twist in the wind with your older hardware. It does what it always did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm trying to, you know, look at it from a, a different point of view. So let's say hmm. uh, one, one possible scenario here is that someone owns the old Sonos system, right? And then they mm. see that the new Sonos system supports, and I don't know if this is the case. I'm just making this a hypothetical. Sure. Let's say the new system, all you know, they announced it's going to it's going to support Title Connect. 
okay. and there's a small user base out there that goes, oh, you know, I really want Title Connect because I want blah 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 blah, whatever it is about Title that people you know are attached. To. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they go, yeah, I can't get that because I have the old hardware. Boy, that's just not fair. You know, but it's like, well, but, you know. But it is fair. Yeah. Unless Sonos said, we're going to bring Tidal Connect to the S1 and then reneged on that. What's, what's unfair about it? You knew when you bought the S1 that it was never going to support Tidal Connect. Right. You when, knew at yeah, the time of purchase, title, right? Yeah. It may not have uh, more than likely been on the radar yet. Right. I mean, we should be clear. Tidal Connect is not coming to Sonos. We're just talking about this from a hypothetical yeah, point of view. Yeah, hypothetical. Right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, I just, I don't see that these fundamentals are being changed, but I do understand the anxiety that Sonos introduced into the marketplace, even though I actually think it's kind of mostly unfounded. But then I thought, hang on a minute. Well, maybe maybe people like Blue Sound, Auralic, uh, Name, who also make streaming products, maybe... Mm they're not rolling out updates to their really old hardware. So I emailed all three of them, hmm. Blue Sound, Aurelic, and Name, and said to them, like, how far do your updates go, your security updates or your kind of, hmm. yeah, just to keep products running to make sure that they are as secure as they can be and they're not, you know, exposing you to some nasties of the net and maybe include some optimization features. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them said that, you know, we really haven't, I don't think any any either of any of them said that we've left let this one go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one is no longer receiving updates. I think Name said they were going back to products over ten years old. Mm -hmm. Auralix said that they're still rolling out updates to the original Aries and Aries Mini. Uh, wow. Blue Sound are still updating the original nodes and power mm -hmm. nodes. Right, so they're still seeing some love. Right, this is ten years down the line. Yes, yes, which is which is. Longer than most Android phones, which is two to three years, four oh. if you get a Google phone. Mm. It's longer than most iPhones, which is five to six years, which is pretty good, actually. So, again, I'm not seeing where mm -hmm. this anxiety about, you know, being left behind and, you know, having a paperweight. I just don't see where it comes from because it doesn't seem to be borne out by the past. Yeah. What's going on, right? Yeah. I yeah, I agree. And perhaps it is, again, this... this um this uh, thought process that, you know, you always want the latest and greatest regardless. And, uh, you know, perhaps the fear is, oh, there's, there's going to be something new that's great that I don't even know about yet that I know I want. And I don't know if my, you know, hardware platform will support it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's rooted in anxiety over things that don't exist yet um, i think it's it, it's fear hmm. of it, it's the fear of being in a future where you you know you don't have the latest thing mm. <laughs> right even though it functions properly and as it always did and it's still rock solid and still stable and still getting updates there'll be another newer model so it's a it's it's like the, the shit bifrost thing yeah right? it's it's the fear of not being left behind technologically speaking, but mm. being being put in a mental state where you realize you no longer have the very latest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? I guess, yeah, what comes to mind is, you know, like, so I drive an old Audi um, and I could easily say, oh my gosh, the new Audis have that cool heads-up display. 
you know, in the uh, in the front windshield. Mm-hmm. I want that. Why don't I have that? Why can't I get that on my car? It's not fair. It's like well, your car is over ten years old. <laughs> it, it can't support that. So out, you know, I think most people would say, yeah, that's an unreasonable request on your part. If you want that yeah. new stuff in your car, you have to get a new car. I, I mean, I see the streaming hardware the same way. If you mm. want that new thing, you've got to buy that new thing. Yeah. Now, I realize that manufacturers also have a responsibility to try and put that new thing into many as, as many of the old things that will support it. Mm-hmm. And I say this because when KEF introduced the LS50 Wireless 2, there was a, an enormous amount of table thumping from basically my YouTube commenters. Like, why can't my original LS60 have this new software update, right, that gives us Chromecast and mm. uh, Amazon streaming from within the app? Mm. And no matter how many times I explained why, this, the, the table thumping still came. Mm. And it's basically because the hardware inside the original LS50 wireless does not support the software it cannot run yeah it, it doesn't have the horsepower to run yeah. the software that runs in the ls50 wireless 2 so basically when kef built the ls50 wireless 2 they said well we need to put a like a basically a hardware streaming platform in here with with overhead with cpu well cpu resource overhead mm. so that we can kind of update it to incoming technologies, because I know that Mads Bookart has spoken about this with me, where he said that the new Chromecast update that was rolled out by Chromecast for Chromecast built-in was quite large and it was very resource intensive. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why he can't add other features to his products, to his streaming boards, because basically Google is eating all the space or mm-hmm. all the resources, right? Mm. So I think yeah, I mean, I would agree. Yeah, so here's the other thing, right? I've got, I've, I do have to address this because it does bug me a little bit. Somebody left a comment of like, John, the the apps that Kef supplied with the original LS50 wireless are crap. Why didn't you tell us about this? Mm. Why didn't I tell us about this, right? Mm. Now, here's the thing. That was six years ago. The streaming world was very different six years ago. Mm. The, the app world was very different. Yeah. Back then, those apps were okay. They worked as advertised, but they weren't great. And as I said at the time, is I just use them to kind of onboard speakers to my network. And then I'm using AirPlay as the reception for Rune streams. Mm-hmm. And then I use Spotify Connect as well. Mm-hmm. So I never had to go near that app. app. Yeah. But that's not because that app was necessarily bad, because I generally see most apps supplied by most manufacturers as a step backwards from rune or from the native apps like spotify's own app or yeah. title's own app right mm. so the connect services keep me in the native app mm-hmm. when you ask me to go to blue os and mm. navigate title from that i'm not enjoying it as much as i did when i was using the native title app or especially rune yeah so that's my take on that but it doesn't mean that those apps are crap for everybody. It just means that I'm just a fussy bastard and maybe I've been spoiled by too much rune usage. But the, the, the thing is, is that our expectations of what streaming apps do, do evolve pretty quickly because what they did six years ago or our standards six years ago were probably a lot lower than they are now because other better apps have come along. So like the Kef app, the, 
now ships with the LS60 wireless, the LS50 wireless 2, is bloody amazing. Hmm. It's it's so much better than the LS50 wireless is um, twin. They, they use two apps. I forget what they're called. Is it Connect and Stream? I think that's what they were called. But those Connect and Stream apps are still getting updates. Like yeah. the LS50 yeah. wireless original owners have not been left again to twist in the wind because mm. Kev don't give a crap about their apps anymore. No, they're still being updated. I checked. You, know, see, you can see in the Google Play Store and the iOS App Store when the last update was, and it was a few weeks ago. So yeah. you might not like the app, but it doesn't mean, and it may have been made to look old-fashioned by, but maybe this is where the kind of the, the streaming progress com, you know, comes in. But I would say that if you're using the native apps, or sorry, the apps given to you by streaming companies, mm. and I would include BlueOS, Lightning, DS, EOS, they're all great to, uh, to a point, but I don't think they are as good as using Rune or native streaming apps yeah. on phones, uh, right? I agree with that. Yeah, sure. I'm being quite harsh here, actually, but I, I think it's, it's something I've been saying more often in my videos. Yeah, on Rune, I just think it's, it's worth uh, footnoting that you know Rune came out of a product called Sulus. Yes. And and Sulus originally um, was created by the two founders of Rune. And that was that was 2005. Mm -hmm. And then Meridian acquired Sulus in 2008. Right. Um, and then they obviously they broke off and became Rune in 2015. But that, you know, I, I'm sure you saw those early Sulus. The, I saw the Meridian uh, Sulus that it was a hardware slash software interface, but it was very slick. Mm. <laughs> and mm. we're talking about 2009 was when that product hit the market, the Meridian Sulus. Mm -hmm. So again, this idea that things change and I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm just I just think it's worth noting that the technology behind Rune really has its roots in it's like uh, 2005. Right. So it's almost, I guess, the, its DNA is almost 20 years old. Yeah. So it, it didn't suddenly come out of nowhere overnight. Yes, I mean, because exactly. I know Rune launched officially, was it 2015? 2015, right? yeah. Yeah. So, but it's like that old saying, it takes 10 years to blow up overnight. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just... It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't come out of nowhere. And Rune has really changed the game for many people, but not everybody. Sure. I understand that. And I think this is the appeal of, let's say, Apple AirPlay, is it keeps you in the native app, even though the stream travels through the phone, which does still bug me a little bit, but not as much as yeah. it used to. Mm. <laughs> but it, you're, not, you, you're not forced into somebody's UI. Now, the reason, I'm, I mean, maybe that people think I'm being harsh about Lightning DS or even Heos that comes with Marantz and Denon mm. or Blue OS or even the name streaming app is that if you want me to use your app, you have to give me a compelling reason to do so. You have to give me a UX, a UI that is superior to the native app. And mm. as far as I can tell so far, none of them do that. The reason those things exist is so that people can run Tidal streaming, Kobo streaming, Amazon HD streaming, maybe Napster streaming as well, plus a little bit of home network streaming mm. without having to go off to Rune and pay for it. So it's like a, it's, it's a freebie, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And some, some are better than others. I mean, I think my, 
I think Lightning DS is my favorite of the bunch because it just works so fast. It's so damn fast at indexing a library mm. of material. Mm. But I'd still, if I was forced to choose on user experience alone, I'm going to go Rune first and then other native apps. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I might come to sort of, I guess you call manufacturer supplied apps. I'm not calling them UPnP apps. I used to, but I'm not calling them that oh. because Blue OS uses Samba. Mm -hmm. It doesn't use UPnP, but it's kind of like that old way of doing things. And I think it's fine if you've, if you, you're coming over from CDs for the first time, right? And yeah, you get, well, yeah. Mm. Right, if you're put into Blue OS and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Mm. But I always think, well, hang on a minute. You wait till you see Rune or wait till you see um, the title app. Now, some people are not, <laughs> i got to be careful. Some people are not visually motivated. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the the, the user experience or the, how, how nice the app feels. Some people just don't care. That's how their brains are wired. Yes. So they they probably listen to us and go, what the hell are John and Michael talking about? Well, I don't get it with Rune. Mm -hmm. I don't get it with AirPlay or these streaming apps, you know? Yeah. Fine. You don't get it. But that's just because we see the world in different ways. And I'm not just about hi-fi. I'm on about the world. <laughs> because for me, hi-fi is more than just sound quality. It is mm. the, in, you know, the way we interface with it is super important. And that starts, it starts with the streaming app. Yeah. Right. It, even even before the volume control comes in. Yeah, and I I would say taking a step back to your original um, kind of uh, approach to this subject, Futurefy. You know, mm. I I would suggest that the you know the days of of uh, ten terabyte and up libraries um, are numbered. But I guess what I'm saying is. Um, the few, uh, people I know who are in their twenties, we have two daughters <laughs> mm -hmm. and their friends, nobody, they're, they're no, these people don't buy downloads. They don't buy downloads. You're talking about people like you and I who buy downloads and rip CDs and put them on a hard drive and have them in our house because we're so afraid that somebody's going to flip the, the switch on title and turn it off. Yeah. See, I don't right? have that. I'm sorry. To, I do. But, yeah, I no, know no, you go guys. Ahead. Go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't really have that same anxiety, but anyway, sorry. No, it's, like no, it's okay. I mean, mm. you can, it's, I mean, it's my doomsday anxiety, right? Mm. It's just if streaming service, if the internet goes down, I can still stream music, right? Or I sure. can play CDs and, and, and vinyls. <laughs> vinyls, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's play those things. Now, that doesn't make me a better person. It just actually creates more work for me than I probably would like. But I know that streaming manufacturers have to cater a little bit to people like us. But we, as we've seen from the Rune updates in the last couple of years, they're slowly moving away from that towards the more sort of streaming people, mm. the Tidal Kobos people, right, who yeah. are pulling down stuff from streaming services, yeah. rather a, mi a mix. Mm. You know, they're mixing it in more. And I like seeing new releases. I don't know whether you've seen this. I, I, maybe it's been around for a while, but I just noticed it. When I go to an artist now, if I scroll down a bit, I see new releases from artists similar to, similar to this one, yes. which is brilliant. Yes. Right? I, didn't, I hadn't seen that one before. But, oh, um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually found that extremely um, helpful in, in finding out new yeah. music. Yeah. yeah, music discovery, that's the thing. I mean, I, I've said it before, but with Rune, 
that is they get a huge check mark in the plus column for they, music discovery for me they do but i mean to a, to a sort well i guess to a different extent so if you're playing spotify you can tell it to play similar tracks mm-hmm. after the current playlist is finished i think title they all do the same sort of thing sort of thing i'm not saying it's exactly the same right right it's similar so they're they're all generally pretty good for that but i guess what i'm saying is that I think the things that are most likely to drop off software-wise mm. are not AirPlay, Chromecast, Spotify, Connect, Tidal, Connect, and Rune. It's going to be the functionality of these other apps supplied by the streaming manufacturers themselves, like mm. these generally self-branded things like Lightning DS and Name. I'm not saying they're not going to update them, but it's just that they, to me, that unless, I mean, Auralic are moving at a furious pace to stay up with latest trends in streaming apps like Rune, right? They're, they've yeah. gone in a similar direction. I'm not saying they're copying them. I'm just saying they've gone in a similar direction, right, mm. in terms of features. And I think that's the only thing that the companies like that can do because they've got to keep up because otherwise they're going to be left behind mm-hmm. and people will just end up using Rune instead of the, the – I mean, Lightning DS is free with your Auralic product. Yeah. So – I, I just don't see any, none of these things that we've mentioned today are defunct or have been dropped by the, mm-hmm. the hardware manufacturer yeah. or, yeah. or let, you know, left to left, left out to pasture. They're still getting updates. I want to give a shout out to one system we haven't mentioned so far, mm. and that's to good old Logitech squeeze box, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Because ever since Logitech discontinued, well, it's not even Logitech Squeezebox, it's just called Squeezebox or Squeezebox Server. Mm. Ever since Logitech discontinued the Squeezebox Touch in 2012, RIP, 10 years gone. Mm. Ever since that, the community, it's been, I mean, the development of that software has been handed over to the community. They've kept it going. In fact, they've, they've, they've caused it to blossom, mm. right? It is better now than it has ever been, Squeezebox mm-hmm. Server. Mm-hmm. And then you have things like Squeeze Lite that end up as the streaming clients that you can stream to. Mm. And you tend to see these things in, well, in higher end music service streamers like Inuus or Antipodes or others that I haven't really played with, but I know they're kind of out there. The small green computer type stuff as well. Yes. Um, but I think it's great that that still exists because it's free. You can actually run, I've made a video about this, you can run Squeezebox Server and squeeze light on a single Raspberry Pi. So mm. it is a service streamer. You just attach a hard drive into the side on the USB, USB socket. And it's a self-contained service streamer. Wow. Completely fr- completely free, right? Yeah. No money down. And then you need a control app. And those control apps are great. There's iPeng on the iOS side. Mm. There is Orange Squeeze on the Android side. Great apps. Mm. Especially Orange Squeeze because it actually allows you to download albums to your phone that you can then walk out the door with. It's kind of a hidden feature, but it's, it's still pretty cool. So even Squeezebox that you think would have died off because the hardware was killed by Logitech, it's still going, you know, in the open source development community. It's just incredible. Yeah. And now just to, (laughs) yeah. So the, to put a date, I did look back but what like so the first squeeze box with that name was uh came out in 2003 yes it was slim devices right yeah you know so 
that's a that's a, I, I think in terms of our list, hmm. the oldest. <laughs> I think it, he probably is. Yeah, it predates yeah. it predates Sonos and uh, and the early version of Asulus uh, by a couple of years. I would go so far as to say that Squeezebox, the platform, integrates more streaming services than any of the commercially available mm. apps that we see, mm. like BlueOS and Lightning DS. It, it just covers everything, mm. everything. It, it, it has all sorts of wonderful plugins that, again, community developed. Yeah. And even the, I think the web interface got a new skin mm. about four years ago. I've forgotten the name of it now I'm on the spot. I think it begins with an M. I did write about it a while back. Mm. Um, but I want to just give a, give a shout out to anybody still running a squeeze box in, in whatever form, like whether it's on a Pi or whether it's still an original squeeze box and you're running a server somewhere else. I've because, got a squeeze box touch. <laughs> yeah. You should dig it out. Yeah, I should dig it out, yeah. But here's, I mean, just to finish this segment, because we need to wrap mm. this up, really. One of the really cool things that Rune did very early on was enable streaming from Rune to all Squeezebox devices, including mm. those sort of faux Squeezeboxes where Squeezelite is running on a Pi, mm. right? So those are part of the Rune ecosystem, as are any Chromecast devices, right? Whether yeah. they be hardware or software. Same with AirPlay. Yeah. Same with Sonos. So Rune can stream to pretty much everything apart from Spotify Connect, Tidal Connect. But I don't want to... Mm -hmm kind of derail this conversation with too much tech talk because really the, my major point here is that nothing seems to be out of date yet. <laughs> I can't think of one thing. I mean, yeah. if you can, please email me and let me know, oh, this thing is out of date or this, this, this thing doesn't work anymore. But the stuff that we see pretty much every day and audio files tend to encounter on streaming products out there in the wild, still going still functions as it always did. Mm -hmm. yeah. End of rant. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out on that one. Right? Okay, so just <laughs> <laughs> Point made. <laughs> point, oh, point made. Yeah. Three times underscored. Yeah. I do tend to over explain myself. Anyway, let, let's move on because, oh, well, we can move <laughs> moving on from, from one kind of sort of ranty thing to another. Right mm. now, this next story <laughs> has probably been the biggest controversy that I've seen in the, I'll, I'll say in the vinyl world, as, as for as long as I've been doing hi-fi in 12 years. Yeah. I don't know about you, Michael, but... Um, yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. Oh, yeah, well... Do you want to explain what this is? What the, Basically what the essence of this controversy has been? <laughs> you, I can do it if you want, I don't mind. Um, yeah, go. I'm going to let you All do right. the summary. Okay. It's really simple, right? Yeah. It's super simple. People have been buying records mastered and pressed by Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs for, what, 10, 15 years. And generally, the premise has always been, unless otherwise stated, that these are analog transfers, right? Whether they go from a direct from the master tape or from a, from a tape to another tape or from a, a tape to a is it to a mother, to a, sorry, to a father, to a mother, to a stamper, but generally no digital stage in the chain. Mm -hmm. right? All analog. Yeah. Uh, all analog. Generally that's been the implication, even though it, well, looking back, it was never really, ex well, was it explicitly stated? Anyway, whatever. People have bought these records on the understanding that these are generally speaking, all analog transfers. Now what has come to light recently that that ain't the case. 
mm-hmm. is that MoFi have apparently been using a interstitial digital stage. I won't get into the reasons why they use this. I mean, one of the major reasons why is they can't run the tape many, many times to produce enough stampers to press the number of records that they want to press. Yeah. So the, and this is where this kind of, the question mark arose is people, well, Michael Ludwig, who runs the the channel, is it audio, audio file 45 EP, RPM? It's mm. a uh, YouTube channel about vinyl. He asked the question, like, how can MoFi be doing this? How can they be pressing so many of Michael Jackson's Thriller, which is coming out soon, without running the tape many, many times? So it transpires that MoFi apparently have been using an interstitial digital stage. So go from a tape to a digital file and then to, you know, to cutting a lacquer. Yeah. Yes. So they didn't lie. Well, like I have seen emails where people kind of go, well, they lied here. But generally they didn't lie, but they didn't tell the truth. They weren't open, right? Mm-hmm. They've been caught with their, their pants down. It's a bit of a PR nightmare for them. They did issue an apology of sorts. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it because I've got it here. Mm. This is from Jim Davis, sorry, Jim Davis, the MoFi Sound Lab president. He writes, we apologize for using vague language, allowing false narratives to propagate, and for taking for granted the goodwill and trust our, cons- our customers place in the mobile Fidelity Sound Lab brand. Allowing false narratives to propagate. Yeah, see that? It doesn't really cut it for me. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you kind of, you didn't tell people that you were using digital. Right. Well, if you don't mind, I'll jump in here because I have, yeah, I have the, uh, the full statement in front of me as well. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in paragraph two, quote, we are adopting a policy of 100% transparency regarding the provenance of our audio products. Um, So uh, clearly um, that's an admission that their process wasn't transparent in the past. And that lack of transparency misled a lot of people a lot of, mm-hmm. of their customers. So yeah, I, you know, it's an ugly situation, I would suggest, on that level. Right, because I think we should point out that these records are expensive. Yes, they are. You know, any, anything from, say, like 40, 50 bucks all the way to 100 plus. Mm-hmm. And I think many customers are buying MoFi records on the implicit understanding that these are analog transfers from the analog master tape. Yes. That's the appeal, right? It's the purity is, is what they're buying, right? In, yeah. And, in many cases. I'm not saying in all cases, but in many cases. Well, I'll come to something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's part of it. And, and the notion mm. that it's an all analog chain, that the process itself creates a, a, a limit as to how many copies can uh, be, uh, to be made. It creates this mm. limited, you know, addition inherent to the process of all analog because you can only run, you know, and that's anyway, I'm, I don't want to get bogged down, but you know, that also is part of the appeal and that's part of the reason why they're priced as such, you know? So if you yeah, have something comes out in an addition of 200, you know, and it's, and it's a hugely popular title, you know, people want to jump on that. Right. So right. And we, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, 
I think we should also, I mean, I ha- one thing I haven't said yet, and I should say, is people are also buying these records because they sound fucking amazing. Well, and generally they are some of the best versions of these albums ever made, right? Yes. Sound-wise. Right? I think that's a, it, a huge overriding point that needs to continue to be made, yes. Right. Yes. And so this this idea, well, this reveal that a DSD or DXD stage has been used in the in the production process of these MoFi releases mm-hmm. doesn't take away from the fact that these records still sound great. Yes. Like your records don't suddenly turn to mush overnight. They don't suddenly <laughs> lose sound quality overnight. Right. But I guess what they do is they lose value on the, on the used market. So that's going to bug some people, especially the people who are buying from a sort of, would you call it a perspective point of view? Like speculators. Speculative point of view, that's right. Yeah, yes. spec- yeah, and there are people out there, you, and plenty of them, who buy uh, MoFi releases, and leave, never open them, wait a X amount of time, and then sell them on the used market for uh, quite a large multiple of their original outlay. This is, a, this is what happens when you produce anything that's in, where, where demand outstrips supply. Yes. You get this, you know, this price inflation on the used market, rightly or wrongly. It's like yeah. ticket scalping. It's the same thing. I'm not, I don't want to really get into that. Like, no, I mean, you can, yeah, it's, I don't like it, but I guess you can't really do much about it. But the reason we're talking about all of this today hmm. is that, so I, I, let me ask you a question, Michael. Like, have you ever owned a MoFi release? I have not, no. Right. You never bought one. No. So if I look at their, homepage now and i've got them sorted by featured so i'm looking at mark knopfler the young rascals don't know they're michael jackson bill withers van halen van halen van halen so a bunch of van halen's miles davis the eagles james taylor elvis presley alan parsons none of these artists speak to my musical taste elo uh paul simon cannonball adderley eric clapton unplugged i mean a lot of this (laughs) right? Eagles, Carol King, Tapestry. I mean, all of these things are just war horses of the audiophile world. I'm not mm-hmm. saying all of them, not saying all of them, because there are a few that I've owned in the past because I was curious, right? Yeah. And I did, I, did, I did have for a while, and maybe I still have them in Australia in storage, I'm not sure. There were a couple of REM releases, I think Life Switch Pageant and Document were done, and then all of the Pixies. Mm. And now, I, got, I have to qualify this. I didn't have a great turntable when I bought these. I had like a, a Rega Planar 1 or something like that, which mm. I don't think sounds any better than a, the equivalent money spent on a streaming device. But that's another spicy conversation for a diff- <laughs> another day, right? But, but the Pixies and the REM were the only artists that spoke to my musical taste. But playing them side by side with the original normal pressings that I had, I just kind of went, oh, this, if there is a difference, I can't hear it. So it's not for me. I didn't say it's not for anybody. I just say it's not for me. Maybe yeah. if you've got a 50 grand turntable and you put on MoFi's Doolittle, this is the Pixies album, you might go, wow, that sounds so much better than the, the standard pressing, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's, that's for you. That's not for me. But I just, I don't see the appeal of spending a hundred bucks or even 50 bucks on a special pressing of an album. And there's, there's, there's quite a few reasons why I don't find this appealing. I certainly, from a sound quality point of view, I don't. And I'll, I'll tell you why. is because basically, let's say 
I don't know, let's take the one steps that are 100 bucks plus, right? Yeah. If you buy 10 MoFi one step releases, that's roughly $1,000. Mm -hmm. If you buy 20, that's $2,000, right? So you've got 20 of the albums in your collection that sound amazing. Like they're so, so good, mm. right? But <laughs> this is the but is that that's two grand. You could buy the most fantastic sounding phono cartridge for two grand mm. and upgrade the sound of all of the albums you own, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously they're not going to be as good as that two grand cartridge plus the MoFi, but it just seems to be a more democratic use of money rather than just honing in on these sort of special releases. I guess what I'm saying is I don't understand the, this is again, me doesn't necessarily hold for everybody. Maybe it holds for you. I don't know, but I don't understand the appeal of just putting all that money into one album. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's worth noting that there are people out there who could do both easily could spend two grand on records and spend 10 grand on a, you know, upgraded cartridge and not sweat it. Right. I mean, that's maybe what's going on here. I mean, maybe it's just for a, a, the niche of high end cartridge slash turntable owners well, here, in, mm. in the, in the hi-fi space. Yeah. See, I guess, yeah. In part, it's like, it's a very personal thing, and I just don't. Uh, I don't know how even to say it. I'm trying not to say it bl bluntly, but I I don't see the appeal of of these of audiophile pressings so much. I mean, I do understand it, but but that appeal doesn't really exist for me. And one example I would. I would mm. give is that uh, I did buy a uh, acoustic sounds uh, release of Jimi Hendrix Axis Boldest Love, so the second record, um, and it was expensive. I don't remember exactly how much it was when it was mm. when it came out. This was a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. because it's one of the most important records in my life <laughs> it was okay yeah i mean he was that it, Jimi hendrix was the first musician i really connected with as a kid and i bought mm. the records in order when i could afford them and the, the three studio records anyway so this is a big deal so i bought it and uh, sometime thereafter i ended up selling my entire nearly my entire record collection uh-huh um and i also had an original Axis Boldest Love, the original tricolor reprise. And that I kept that <laughs> record. And uh, you know, the the acoustic sounds one went with the with the sale. So my attachment, mm. you know, in ter of, of in terms of wanting to keep, you know, this super important record for me was with the original. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's that's all about, you know it's very personal matters and what I value as a collector, you know? Um, and I'm not, this is, I'm not discounting other, you know, other people. No, not at all. No, I'm just no. talking about like, you know, why this isn't and whatever. I'm trying to explain myself and my preferences. I'm illustrating with an example, but, um, but I'm also, you know, I think it relates. I'm also a book collector and an art collector. Mm. You know, so somebody could easily say to me, why would you pay so much money for some stupid first edition with the original dust jacket when you just buy the, 
you could buy either the paperback right from Amazon or guys, you could buy a used paperback of that same book for like a dollar any day mm-hmm. of the week. And you've spent all this money on this, you know, and I uh, sure. I mean, on one hand, he has a book is a book is a book. It's the words aren't different <laughs> in the paperback or in my first edition, blah, 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 blah. But, um, I really have an attachment to these uh, things as cultural artifacts. That's the phrase I was about to say. Mm. These are cultural artifacts, right? Yeah. Now, the, the thing is, when I look at a mobile fidelity release, I don't see it as a cultural artifact. I, I see it as a, mm. I don't know, a reprocessed, heavily reprocessed, more, more so than just a, a more recent remaster. And it's for actually for what some people might concede, consider to be quite a a trivial issue is I don't like the MoFi fuck with the cover art mm. and they put their, yeah. their mobile fidelity sound lab right in a top strip at the top of the, the front, um, the front of the sleeve. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's an ugly font. I just think it ruins the cover art. Mm. It's, it's no longer as the artist originally intended. It's not because the artist originally didn't intend to put mobile fidelity sound lab across the, the top yeah. in, a, in a strip. Right. Mm. I mean, if I can bring it back to a couple of examples, right? So mm-hmm. if I look up REM's Life Switch pageant on Discogs, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I say, okay, I want the MoFi release, which came out in 2011. On Discogs right now, starting price, 122 euros, which is a lot of money, mm. right? I wouldn't, pay for, I wouldn't pay for it. But if I look up, say, the original pressing, the original Bob Ludwig cut, mm. which is comes from 1986, starting price, 14 euros. Huh. Now, it's not just because it's cheaper. It's because this is the original pressing. This isn't even like a reissue that came out two or three years later or yeah. uh, some deluxe edition that came out in 20, 2005. This is like the thing that hit record stores in America in, in the mid-80s, in 86, when the album came out. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that has, from a cultural artifact point of view, has far more allure. Mm. I'll give you another example, if I may. Sure. Um, let's, go with, let's go with Bowie, right? Mm. So Ziggy Stardust was done by MoFi, I think, in 1981. And the original album came out in 72. So the MoFi edition is pretty old, right? It's yeah, 40 years old already. So rarest hen's teeth, if you look on Discogs, mm. pricing starts at 176 euros. Mm. If I had the money, I would never buy one. Mm. You know why? Because I can get an original German pressing on Discogs from 1972, original German, mm. right? The, the thing that went into the racks in Germany in 72, 55 euros. So a third <laughs> of the price. Yeah. And... I'm not saying that the original will sound necessarily as good as the MoFi. Mm-hmm. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I guess I'd need the playback hardware to properly realize that difference. But to me, it doesn't have, maybe it's romanticism, Michael. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Maybe it's just the idea of the original is what I'm paying for here, right? I'm, I'm, it's almost like a, a time capsule that I'm buying. Yeah, and, I don't a, feel, and yeah. a touch of nostalgia, certainly for me with the Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Right. So I just, I guess what we're doing here is we're playing counterpoint to the idea that all audio files are always motivated by sound quality. Mm. And 
in some cases, especially in this kind of vinyl case, I'm certainly not. I don't think you are. I think there are other things in play that trump sound quality and it ain't just money either it's not that it's just just buying the cheapest pressing or anything like that it's yeah. buying something that yeah yeah i do think it's worth getting back to this um the point though um you know friends of mine people who are super record collectors and not audiophile pressing record i mean just record collectors have uh, you know they buy mofi and records because they sound really good and I'm not. I think that's an important point to to continue to re to reiterate. Um, you know, they do sound really good because you know the process. Um, their their processes are sound. They know what they're doing. They know how to mm-hmm. how to produce very good sounding records. So that's mm-hmm. that's like a point that I think to me, uh, for me, is more important than than the uh mastering chain you know the idea that they you know they there's a, a dsd piece in the whole puzzle doesn't destroy my universe okay you know it, and i think it does for the people who are buying on the basis that they are getting a pure analog transfer at first it's, it's the idealist the purists right yeah absolutely they want that, right right even though they could very well have and they more than likely all of the people who are upset about this have been buying and listening to and enjoying these records for years. Mm-hmm. So the sound quality is trumped by this ideal of, of an old analog process. And yeah, sure. That's, you know, I mean, again, so that's similar to me um, being attached to this, what we've called a cultural artifact. You know, other people look at that and go, you're an idiot, you know, or whatever, or I just don't relate to that. Right. People say, I just don't relate to that. It's a book. It's a book. It's a book. I just want to read it. Mm. You know, I don't need to collect some thing, you know? Um, so I lost my second point. <laughs> well, it's well, okay. So if somebody came up to me with two copies of, of the Pixies debut album, Surfer Rosa, right. Yeah. And one was the original, I think it's called the rough cover version from 1988. Right. So it's the original pressing let's say it's like from the first batch Mm -hmm. but they also had in their other hand the mofi version from 2009 they said john pick one no money involved like which one would you choose yeah i choose the original rough cover to you know 1988 version every single time yeah i wouldn't even think i wouldn't even think twice i I feel the same way and i also did one example i looked up um so on a a mofi release that i wouldn't you know an album i like so Mm. the one i landed on is miles davis the jack johnson record i just love that's mm-hmm. a great record um mm-hmm. and so that when that was originally originally released by mofi it was 39.99 it's long sold out mm-hmm. so people are are selling the original sealed mofi copies i'm just looking on ebay Anywhere, the mm. highest price is <laughs> someone in germany is that you john someone in germany is, <laughs> Is okay. asking almost three hundred dollars for it, and um, and the and there's others for less, one hundred and forty for a sealed MoFi copy. But mm. you know, and following the trail on Discogs, you could buy an original pressing for starting at around twenty five bucks. 
And maybe that's the low price, you know, $50 seems to be, you know, 60, but yeah, no doubt. I would, I I would absolutely get the original pressing. That's just me, you know, and I wouldn't sweat over a difference in sound quality because actually I used to own this record and it's a great sounding record. Uh, Again, I owned an original pressing, you know, Hmm. Um, and I'm also just to add one more personal note. I'm not a fan of buying the same record I already own. You know, I've got a limited yeah. budget to buy albums. Hmm. Um, hmm. So I like to buy new albums, uh, largely hmm. meaning new releases. You know, that's where my, the, the, by far the bulk of my record buying budget goes is to new releases. Yeah, I mean, occasionally I will buy mm. a new version. I mean, you and I have discussed this, this before, right? So yeah. I don't really love the remastered concept too much, especially if the original master was pretty good. Mm. But if there are extra tracks, bonus cuts, yeah. which as long as – see, Morrissey is guilty of this. He'll reissue something, but he'll also maybe take one track off and put one track on or change the mix of a one track. He's mm. done that in the past. Mm. That drives me crazy. But if it's, that's the only version I can buy because the original one is 30 years out of print, then and I'm going to have to spend $300 to buy it, then I'm not going to do it and I'll buy the reissue. And I might buy the reissue if it's got, I don't love demos, but live tracks, B-sides from that era, mm. definitely. I love those <laughs> kinds of things. So these sort of deluxified editions, I am a fan of, as long as they're not crazy, crazy expensive. I think when... Vinyl reissues, I mean, there was Orbital, for example. Mm-hmm. It's not a reissue, actually. It's their, their new 30-something compilation, which came out last Friday. Mm. So it's it's a double CD, right? Double CD is cost me about 18 euros. But the vinyl is, uh, it's like, is it eight, eight records or something crazy? Oh, Six yeah, records? Yeah. It's a hundred bucks. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Mm. I know it's, Technically not a reissue because they're new versions of old songs, hmm. but still, like where the vinyl gets crazy expensive, I'm like, nah, I'm good. But you know, if if it's an album I don't have on vinyl and I really want it, and the only one is on Discogs, like there's an Australian artist called Jack Ladder, and his debut album was actually repressed a couple of years ago um, with the original track list because the first edition dropped track because of for whatever reason, technical reason with the vinyl, I don't know why. Mm. But they've, they've redone it. And there's a used copy in Australia, 100 euros. I want that so badly. Yeah. It's the only copy that is is there, right? And yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, that's a challenge. I would love that vinyl copy, but I don't know. I look at the CD and go, this CD cost me five bucks. Mm. What am I doing with my life? Because the CD <laughs> stuff I have here can sound really, really good. So it is, I think, you know, vinyl ownership is, certain amount of bragging rights, isn't it? And we all know this. We all feel this, you know, mm. I've got that on vinyl. I've got that on MoFi vinyl, you know? Mm. If you've got the, the, the Ziggy Stardust MoFi, you're going to feel pretty smug about yourself, pr- probably. But sound-wise, I don't know whether there's that much of a difference. Certainly not as much of a difference as there is between a cheap cartridge and a really good cartridge. Mm. Or, mm. I don't know, you know, amplifiers, room speakers, that kind of thing, you know? Just yeah. not, not the same. See the- I really can't speak to because I've never had one. I mean, I've, I've certainly heard heard um, th- some of these MoFi releases at friends' places and at shows, but I've never been able to, to compare. You know, so hmm. I really can't speak to the to the difference. 
Um, well, I can, I can a little bit because I do have, <laughs> I do have some CD rips of the Pixies MoFi stuff, and obviously I've got the original Pixies mm. CDs, and even with those ripped as well. And going back to back between the MoFi Master, mm. this is digital, obviously on playback wise, I don't hear enough of a difference to kind of go, "Wow, oh my god, that's so much better." <laughs> now, I'm not averse to the idea that some of the magic with vinyl comes from just actually it being on vinyl. Yeah. Even if it started life, started life as a digital file. Yes. Right. Yes. So you take a high res master or even a, well, even CD quality, maybe less so, but just the, just the process of moving something from a file to a vinyl record adds and enhances. I'm not averse to that. And I've heard people speak about this and I'm never going to say they're hearing things. If they hear that fine. I, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about, I guess, mm. my CD digital experience, right? Because mm. some people might say, well, John, you've not really heard it until you've heard it on vinyl. Well, yeah, okay. But so I can sort of understand where that reasoning comes from. And I'm not going to fight it. But it's still, a, the differences are still small enough to be a point of contention or mm. debatable, right? I, I, don't, I don't see them as, clear cut necessarily certainly not with the pixies i mean it's indie rock from the 80s so mm. maybe the source material is just not really up to it Don't I? yeah i did spend some time very recently and even uh this morning i i this morning i i should have made a note of it anyway i watched a video of the of how how a lacquer is created mm -hmm. and it's it's fascinating uh, because it's all human hands involved in this process and mm. it's laborious and it's, uh, there's ton, you know, there's, there's plenty of room for human error. Uh, uh. And it's, so it's a craft, it's a true art and craft uh, is involved in the process. And I find that fascinating i mean on a human level i find it fascinating like i enjoy watching you know japanese woodworking videos you know i mean it's just there's right. a beauty to craft and mm -hmm. uh it so these you know the process of creating a, a record um you know it's a very human process it, that's all there is to it it's, it's a um anyway i, I guess so, so it's no surprise to me that regardless of the source for these lacquers, whether it be analog or digital, it's still, you know, there's still going to be a sound related to the fact that it's gone through this process and it's on vinyl mm. versus it being, you know, a DSD file or something. And I'm not talking about sound quality and which is better and blah, 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 blah. I'm talking about on a human level, the preference for the sound, you know, I, that's what interests me more than any arguments over sonic superiority you know whatever yeah i mean that that debate will never end and mm. we're, we're never going to solve it i mean it's just it's that will rage forever yeah because people mm. people are tribal people like to identify with tribes right right just this is human nature so people will always be batting certain corners sure but some yeah some arguments never end because there's really no argument to be had because there's really no point to the argument. That's why some arguments never end. 
And I would suggest this vinyl's better, digital's better is one such argument. It's point it's it's beside the point. There is no clear winner here to be had. Um, well, because there's, there's such a wide range of vinyl experiences, there's such a wide range of digital experiences. I mean, you could talk about a 50 grand tur turntable versus a, a $50 streamer and flip those numbers around and come out with different results. Yeah. Right? And in the end, so, right, we're just talking about listening to music. And I'm not trying to downgrade the importance of that experience, but... You know, there's a famous, I'll go back, there's a famous photo of Jimi Hendrix sitting in front of a console record player with a couple blues albums in his in his hand. Mm. And he's clearly listening to these <laughs> blues records on this console player. And we, we know, anyone who's a fan of Jimi Hendrix knows, he was hugely influenced by blues players, traditional blues players, Delta blues players, blah, 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 blah. And for the most mm. part, he heard those on listening to records and he heard them on more than likely hi-fis like the one that's in this famous photo some cheap console hi-fi now mm. you know and you could say oh god oh jimmy Hendrix what an idiot he didn't he didn't know what good sound was um but we're talking about someone who went on to create you know some of uh, some hugely influential music based on his experience listening to these records sound quality doesn't come into the equation and I, what I'm getting at is, to my mind, there's no uh, more valuable takeaway from listening to music than being inspired to create music. And right. sound quality is not even a part of that picture, and it's not. Then it's, not. it's like, eh, who cares? I don't care. Sound quality, like what? What are we talking about? We're talking about listening to music and, and connecting to music, and uh, so. That's just a long way of saying, you know, to my mind, this argument over sound quality is really beside the point in an abstract. This goes back to where we sort of started today with the, the shit deck is people want to feel like they have the best. Yeah. They, they really do. They want to kind of feel it inside them. Hmm. I've got the best version of this album, or I've got the best sounding format, or I've got the best sounding turntable. Yeah, sure. It's about satisfying one's ego yes which is hmm. it's understandable but it's a little bit sad because really you know we're all most audiophiles are like 50 well, 40 plus 50 plus we should have let go of our ego by now or at least <laughs> not be <laughs> protective of it at like 55 hammering away on on a facebook group conversation you know it's just i, I honestly i do think it's a, because all of those things are ego driven hmm. all of them all those conversations are it's just like, why? What, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Right? And we've all been there. We've all done it. Mm. But hopefully, like, kind of look back and go, oh, my God, can't believe I got drawn into that. Yeah. You know, that's really, I'm a little bit ashamed because I did 10 years ago, joining these little you know, forum sort of spats sure. over things. And it's, and it's all ego because it's all it can be because it's the internet. There's no human interaction. So it, all it can be is ego by definition. Mm. Right? It's It's just... And so people like to feel that they they either know the most, understand the thing the best. You know, it's just yeah, it's just it's almost like a superiority complex, mm. and it bleeds into narcissism a little bit as well. <laughs> Here I go again with the kind of like the uh, the, the kitchen sink behavioral <laughs> psychology. It does seem to explain a lot of things that we see that sort of transcend what appears. It appears the conversation appears to be about sound quality, but it goes. 
it's more than that. It must mm. be because it can't just be about sound quality because it's a, it's the same arguments about different things over and over and over again. Well, yeah, it's like really saying my experience is better than yours. It's like what? right, which is just not nonsense, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've got the best drugs. <laughs> I had the best acid back in '68. You know, just come on. It's just yeah. Sometimes you get lucky and you kind of have a like a wow experience and it could be from a record it could be from a concert it could be just from a trip to the mall mm. it could be something quite mundane and we like to feel like these are special to us unique mm. to us and that feeds into our sense of being but also our you know how how good we feel about ourselves but you know so when people say oh vinyl you know people some people on my <laughs> youtube comments get upset that I'm always needling the Red Hot Chili Peppers as being <laughs> shit as a band. Right? It's my opinion, right? And I've I said this in a recent video. If you're upset that I think the Red Hot Chili Peppers are shit, then the problem's not with me, it's with you. If your ego is so fragile that you can't withstand me saying that I don't like this band. <laughs> come on, what's wrong with you? You're 50 years old. You should be able to deal with this by now. Right? It's just if somebody said, I fucking hate talking heads. David Byrne's got the worst voice I've ever, I've ever heard. Somebody said that to me about 10 years ago. Mm. Didn't give a shit. Don't care. It's just like, it's almost, it's funny. It's when somebody goes off on a tirade about a band they really hate. I'm fascinated by it because <laughs> it just becomes this joke, right? It, yeah. I don't know. But people get so worked up about somebody else criticizing what they like. And I think it's because of insecurity. They're not secure in their preferences. Otherwise, why would they give a shit? Somebody yeah. else is, is poking fun at those preferences. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So it's reminding me of a recent, um, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll say a recent comment that is no longer available on my uh, Instagram feed. But mm -hmm. it doesn't I post? It doesn't matter. I posted about a, a piece of hi-fi equipment, and somebody in the comments said. Oh, I'll be curious what you think about that. I used to have that, but I got this and it destroyed the, in, in all caps, <laughs> it destroyed the whatever. And I just had to laugh. It's like, it destroyed it. You mean like, did it like get up on its hind legs and stomp all over it and kill it? And, you know, but this mm. notion that like this person felt the urge to, to say, oh gosh, I had that thing, and I have something that's so much better. It destroyed it. It's like, well, good. For, I'm glad you're happy with the thing you bought, but mm. where does this all this language even come from? Destroyed and it crushed it. It blew it away. Right, because it's a, it's a, about reaffirming one's choices and therefore identity. Mm. And, and you have to do it in the strongest way possible because nothing can threaten this. Well, little boy language. It's little boy language. You know, cowboys and Indian language. You know, like, I'm sorry, we're not playing war here. This isn't a it's game of battleship. It is. <laughs> it is. It's, but I think the internet, and it's only the internet that tends to bring that out of people. I, I really do. I, I do. I'm not saying the internet is entirely to blame, but it's just when there's no sort of personal yeah, interaction. Absolutely. You know, yeah. no, right. Just imagine you go out on a on a a date and you're you're having dinner with another couple and you bring uh someone you've just started seeing and during mm. the introduction your buddy says oh john your old girlfriend destroyed this girl 
Right. <laughs> you know, just, you, yeah, just all right, but it's also when, yeah, when when you buy a new car and you want to show it to your neighbor, right? And they come over and go, Oh no, your other car was so much better. <laughs> now that's a really that's a real dick thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> yes. But it, they could they could do it, they could be saying it to needle you, that's funny. Yes. But it's just but good manners says you don't say that kind of thing unless you're sure your joke will land. Mm. Right? Mm. Otherwise, Shut the fuck up about it. The dude feel you know, you're, you know, you feel good about your new car. You don't want somebody else pissing on that. And it doesn't really happen in real life because we feel shame in real life. We feel embarrassment mm. and we don't online. Anyway, Michael, we've we've kind of spoken about this ad nauseum, the, this kind of behavioral things. Yes. Sorry. I want to get on to, got, yeah. get, no, no, it's not your fault. It's actually my fault as well. We should talk about recommended albums. I've actually got to sort of scooch my chair across the room a little bit. Fine up. Huh? Got it. Given that we were talking about so much vinyl, I thought I'd pick a CD. <laughs> <laughs> so mm. my recommended album, this, this podcast is called planet dub. So it's actually something you might like, Yeah, but it's not, it's not really Jamaican dub. It's more sort of electronic techie kind of dub. And the clue is in the in the title. Um, Planet Dub is on Planet Dog Records, and Planet Dog was until it went bust the home to Eat Static, Banco de Gaia, uh, Astralasia, I think as well, and Children of the Bong, who were just sort of like electronic, worldy, dubby kind of all under one roof. Sort of it was all marshaled by a chap called Michael Dog. But this album, Planet Dub, is a little bit of an outlier because it's it goes heavier towards that sort of sort of smoky Jamaican marijuana dub. There isn't there aren't many vocals, which which is probably why I liked it in the first place. Mm. I mean it dates back to I think ninety-five or something like that. Oh. Certainly mid-90s. Mm. And it's got Eat Static, Children of the Bong and a few others uh on there. But it's yeah, it's just this kind of really it's just a great heavy listen. Maybe I enjoy it more now than I ever did because I've kind of discovered the epiphany of subwoofers but the re one, one of the other reasons i mentioned this is mm. because this is a double cd and it's not on streaming services it never has been on streaming services it is on discogs i picked up this copy on discogs quite recently pretty easy to get it was licensed for pressing in the usa so it should be easy to get over there i think even getting a vinyl copy is not going to be crazy money but although i think mm. it's a, a four lp set but it's just yeah you can't listen to it unless you go and buy a copy. And I love that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's my recommended album, Planet Dub, various artists on Planet Dog Records. Nice. Done. All right. Well, I picked a piece of vinyl for <laughs> my, uh, my recommended record. Uh, uh -huh. And the title is Promises. And this is a record mm -hmm. that came out uh, just last year on Loakabop, the label that, uh, founded by David Byrne, and it's mm -hmm. by Floating Points, Farrell Sanders, and the London Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. and oh, I think I've heard this, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, well, you know, I would imagine you know Floating Points. That's Sam Shepard. Yeah, yeah I, I would you say he's an electronic artist? Is that like the easy? He is, but he's actually an electronic artist who also cares very much about sound quality. Yes. He's somebody who's kind of got got the gear in his studio and I think also at home from what I know. Um, I just hear these things on the grapevine, but he's not somebody who's just bashing out 
um, dynamically compressed electronic music records at all. No, he yeah, cares no, about sound quality. Yeah, he's got an extensive collection of of uh, all kinds of vintage synthesizers and things. So yeah, sound right. is, and of course, Pharaoh Sanders is Pharaoh Sanders. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes. This is from Albert Eiler. Train was the father, Pharaoh was the son, and I am the Holy Ghost. <laughs> it's such a great... <laughs> okay. Wow. But yeah, so Pharaoh Sanders started playing uh, with Coltrane in 65, was the first record, mm-hmm. uh, a Coltrane record that Pharaoh Sanders played on. And he was 25 years old. So he's had, he's has a long and very, very storied career. Um, I guess one of his earliest releases that really hit the popular attention was karma that was in 69 anyway spiritual Mm. jazz that's really i think his certainly the music he was doing with coltrane was late coltrane where things got very spiritual just after Mm -hmm. the love supreme and this record promises is just it's simply gorgeous it's it's just it's Mm. a beautiful record and his playing on it is he's i believe he's 85 or so I was about to ask how old he is because yeah, because yeah, he's been but his playing is just so it's just superb and it's it's his sound, but again with all these other elements, uh, you know, with the uh, all these different electronic sounds from uh, Sam Shepard and London Symphony Orchestra, it's just it's it's a beautiful record. Of, you definitely want to listen to it all the way through, and you know, mm-hmm. I guarantee you'll be on a, a different plane when you finish. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's something I will, I will check out actually in more detail. I think I did, did play a snatch of it, but that's not, that's no way to treat a record like this. Yeah, so, it's really, thought, yeah, the tracks are called movements, you know, like it's really a record to be listened to all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. It's a beauty. Yeah. So um, uh, is our work done, Michael, for this episode? So. <laughs> our work is done. Yeah, nice one. Well, look, I mean, thank you again for joining us from the barn. Yes. Um, and coming back from the brink. And <laughs> yeah, I'll chat to you again soon. Sounds good. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Twittering Machines' is Michael Lavonia. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.